0: Williams once said that Steve Allen does so many things, he's the only man I know who's listed on every one of the yellow pages. (laughs) Hmm. You know Orson Welles once uh, spoke to a very disappointingly small group and he walked out and he looked balefully at them and he said, "Uh, My name is Orson Welles. I am a actor, a director, producer, playwright, musician, musician, magician, and mathematician. Isn't it a shame there's so many of me and so few of you? (laughs) (laughs) Steve Allen is the only person that I know that can really, really say that. Uh, Let's just take a look at a few things. He created The Tonight Show. He starred on Broadway in The Pink Elephant. He starred in motion pictures, most notably Universal's The Benny Goodman Story. He's written over 4,000 songs including This Could Be the Start of Something Big, Picnic, Impossible, Gravy Walls, and South Ramparts Street Parade. He's written the score for several musicals, including the Broadway production of Sophie and the CBS TV version of Alice in Wonderland. He's made some 40 record albums. He's written the stirring Irish drama, The Wake, which won an LA Drama critic, Critics nomination as Best Play of 1977. He starred in the critically acclaimed NB C series, the Steve Allen Comedy Hour. He's created and written, hosted the Emmy Award winning PBS TV series, Meeting of the Minds, which we've all seen and loved. And he's been inducted into the TV Academy's hall of fame. He's also written a few books and I'm going to read the titles of a few of them here. Uh, this, this, won't take long, 45 minutes. I'm going to give the plot summaries of the f- fiction and uh, synthesize the nonfictions. Uh, Oh, hell, he's written 32 books. Maybe he'll tell us about them. Here he is.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Barnaby. It may seem a little rude when you're so kind as to applaud uh, at that level of volume that I put my hand up and stop it, but it's not just modesty that makes me do that. I don't plan to be that great tonight, so I... (laughs) I didn't want to let you applaud your brains out and build up a lot of expectations. Uh, I have a way of, uh, without having an actual out of body experience, I sometimes feel like I'm seven feet away looking at myself, and uh, then again, I sometimes feel I'm looking at Barnaby Conrad. Oh, thank you. Good. Did you ever hear the expression, who asked you? Thank you. We will introduce this into evidence as Exhibit A, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, sir, but what is your opinion against that of hundreds? (laughs) Anyway, as I was looking at myself a moment ago, I suddenly thought, why am I sitting here with 19 pounds of paper? (laughs) Whoops. 14 pounds of paper. (laughs) Those are the questions you wrote, so it, it did seem reasonable to pick them up. Anyway, uh, after car- Schlepping, as we say, all this stuff around for a long time, I may talk for an hour and not even mention that. I hope not, because your questions are worthy of attention. But uh, it reminds me, at my age everything reminds me of something. <laughs> it uh, reminds me seriously of an instance in which I was invited by the ladies uh, connected with a, a temple on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles to debate uh, the question of nuclear weapons, uh, their use, and slaughtering civilians, and so forth. And I accepted uh, the uh, invitation uh, then to find out that my opponent was Dr. Edward Teller, (laughs) who had some moderate familiarity with the subject matter. But since I was debating morality and he was talking about something else, there was actually no conflict. Anyway, I sat on the uh, platform on that occasion next to him, and in one pocket, this is true, I had a pamphlet uh, quoting Albert Schweitzer, and over here I had two things by Bertrand Russell, and uh, in my back pocket there was something about St. Thomas Aquinas, and I had about, again, 47 pounds of pamphlets and notes and papers and books, and he looked down at me. He came with nothing but his brain, of course. And as we were seated side-by-side, he was very cordially, he looked down and he said, I see you came very well prepared. I said, listen, Dr. Teller, if I were well prepared, would I need all this stuff? (laughs) So, uh, in case my mind goes blank, I do have a few notes. I sat out there this afternoon and was just uh, enchanted and delighted uh, to hear uh, Mr. Schultz uh, talking, uh, as he did. And uh, just as was the case with him, I don't have a prepared speech despite all this paperwork, uh, nor do I at the moment fully know what my responses to your questions will be, but uh, something I guess will occur to me. So uh, we will together work very loose. And and so many of the things that uh, Mr. Schultz said uh, resonated in my mind, we all tend to identify, as the common word has it, with what we hear or read or experience. And uh, there was one question, God knows where, they, <laughs> where it is now, because when they fell, the order was loused up. But somebody uh, here wanted to know, what is uh, my chief joy in life at the moment? Who wrote that uh, question? Oh, here it is. Jean Spencer of Camarillo. Hi, Jean. Uh, she says, what is your vision of joy in life? Well, at the moment, it, it is hanging around with two of my grandchildren. I, I have no greater love for them than the other seven. But these two live just a few blocks from my house. The others are scattered around the country. So I see these two little ones most often. They are by name Bradley and Bobby. Bradley is five and and, uh, Bobby is three and a half. And they say funny things. So even if they weren't funny, I would still love them and enjoy their company. But they constantly make me laugh. And uh, to give a specific instance, they had never, until about a year ago, never been to the beach, had never seen a lot of sand or an ocean. So Jane and I took them down to the home of a friend in Malibu. The friend had moved out for the weekend for our convenience. And we were in the, uh, we were in the house for literally two minutes and the kids looked out the window and saw that's where the ocean was. And zip, they were right out the, down the stairs and on the sand. So I followed them immediately to uh, keep my eye on them. And... Uh, Jane stepped out on the veranda looking down at us and again I emphasize we had been there only two minutes if that and she said now keep your eye on them I said yes that's why I'm here and uh, she said and if they get bored take them for a walk and Bradley said grandpa I said what honey he said I'm bored. (laughs) True story. Just three days ago, I was seated on a uh, small sofa in front of their television set uh, at at their house, my son Bill's house, with Bobby under this arm and Bradley under this arm and just having a marvelous time. And after a while, uh, Bradley got a little disinterested in what was on the television screen and he began to inspect me. And his head was this close, you know, four or five inches from mine. And uh, so he began to look at the side of my head because that's what was close to him. And after a moment, he said, Grandpa. And I said, What, Brad? And he said, You know your hair, along here, along the side? And I said, Yeah. What about it? He said, It's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess he was comparing it to grass, which, when it <laughs> is not watered, is indeed dead. So uh, he thought that was the explanation for the gray and white in the temples. Uh, The real question is, what's the explanation for the dark stuff up here? But that's another quiz. Another thing that uh, I enjoyed about Mr. Schultz's presentation today was because of the fact that I'm a pushover for good cartoon humor. I I emphasize good. Square cartoons I have never been amused by, but hip ones, insightful ones, ones with a philosophical bent, uh, absolutely delight me. Mr. Schultz a few minutes ago reminded me that he he had appeared as a guest on The Tonight Show when we we had worked together at that time. But uh, I just love cartoon humor, and and partly, I guess, because my brain produces cartoons. Since I'm not an artist, I cannot uh, sketch them out, but I have literally hundreds of them in my files just described, the pictures are described. And occasionally, over the years, artists have rendered these sketches and these ideas, I should say, in sketch form, and they have been published. My my favorite, I wish I had, well there is a blackboard there. Uh, I won't bother with that. I'll just make a mark here and some of you can see it and the others will trust those who can. (laughs) Uh, I had noticed, I don't know, maybe when I was about 19 years old, that there is an artist's cliche which is resorted to by artists of major distinction as well as those who aren't so hot at that particular art. Uh, when they draw a flock of birds, uh, assumed to be seen at some distance, they do nothing, literally, but draw two curved lines that, that meet in the middle. And they represent that kind of a shape, the wings, of course. And you'll find it in Leonardo da Vinci and your neighborhood cartoonist. And that's all the birds look like, is these two black lines. But again, that's how birds actually look like, look if you see them a couple of blocks away. So this suffices for all the good and the bad artists. So in this cartoon, which is a three-panel cartoon, uh, you first you see a, a man with a hunting rifle and the hunting gear, the silly cap and the boots and all that. And he's out to shoot whatever birds he can. And in the distance, he looks up and he sees a flock of six or seven of these you know, curve line creatures flying through the air. So he, in the next panel, he looks up and he shoots at them and one falls to earth and he runs over and picks it up and now we see it in tight close-up and all it is is two black lines like this. (laughs) There's no beak, no feet, nothing. (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite comedians among the younger fellas is a man named Stephen Wright. Very, very hip Uh, and when I saw him, well he came in to see me at a comedy club a couple of years ago in, in Boston and then he came back to the dressing room we talked for about an hour. And I told him how much I liked his work and I said, one of the reasons that I like you, Stephen, I like your funny stuff, is that it has a very cartoon-like pictorial uh, element to it. And he said, it's funny you should say that because I used to be a cartoonist. Uh, Just to give you an instance of of Stephen's uh, funniness, although this particular instance is not a a cartoon uh, sketch, he observes accurately enough that whenever any of us move into a new home or new apartment, Uh, Let's assume it's been standing for some time. There always seems to be one electric power switch on the wall, one power button, that doesn't seem to be connected to any particular lamp or ceiling light or uh, fan or whatever it is. It's just there and naturally you touch it and nothing goes on or off and you don't know. So he said he moved into a new apartment and found one of those switches on the wall and just gave it a couple of flicks and nothing happened. He forgot about it, but he couldn't keep his hands off it. And over the next several months, just now and then, maybe once every 10 or 12 days, he'd give it a little <laughs> And he said, nothing happened. He said, then one day I got a phone call from a woman in Vienna who told me to knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> look, for, look for Stephen Wright, all his stuff is that, that funny. One of my very favorite cartoonists, Uh, and I would guess, uh, Mr. Schultz's too, is a man who's no longer with us named Virgil Parch. Virgil made an interesting career out of exactly one formula. He never varied from it, or if he did it never came to my attention. He would draw uh, literalizations of idiomatic expressions, uh, common figures of speech, and he would sketch them out in such a way that they were not just figures of speech, but represented some sort of social reality. Uh, To give you one instance, there's a scene in which two men, a moment before the click of the shutter, so to speak, have obviously been walking down the street, any street, side by side, and one of them is looking back, and because he's looking that way, he doesn't realize that his friend is suddenly lying dead in the gutter. He's just fallen right down. And what has just happened is that they have passed a not only very ugly woman, but a fierce angry, vindictive-looking woman, very big and and frightening. And the guy that's oblivious to the uh, demise of his buddy says, Boy, if looks could kill, huh, Jim? (laughs) I don't deserve any of these laughs. I'm just quoting Virgil Parch. And he's not the only cartoonist to have uh, taken that particular form of of comic address, I'm sure others have been influenced by him. And there was a brilliant example just recently in one of the major magazines, I can't remember and who cares, the scene was a a quite imposing office, uh, obviously, of the CEO of some major corporation. The desk was enormous, the room was enormous, and the furnishings were impeccable and so forth. And the fellow behind the the desk looks formidable and, and threatening. Uh, what the image of a CEO is, realistic or not, and two of his employees have just entered his sanctum, and they are sort of embracing like this and going sideways, and if he says, if you two think you can just come waltzing in here and ask for a raise... <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Anyway, those those thoughts, as I say, were stimulated by uh, Mr. Schultz's remarks, by, by some of them. Uh, I didn't get up here to, to plug one of my books, which is titled How to be Funny, but uh, there are generally similar observations in that. Again, I'm not plugging it. They have no copies for sale out there, but if you're ever interested in that, uh, fine. Uh, I'm going to read now some more of your uh, your questions and try to answer them. We have learned over the years that it's a little more fun if when I read your name you somehow acknowledge your presence. You can applaud or... Hit your wife or do something to let me know where you are. But you do not have to do that. It's just a suggestion. Jane Keel, K-E-H-L. I guess at Westlake Village. Where are you, Miss Keel? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. She says, "What is your best uh, source of inspiration?" I would say any three consecutive weeks without income. <laughs> <laughs> How about that We've discussed the thing about the grandchildren. Jean Le Patois, is that it? Uh, Fremont, California? I guess that's the name. She says, Mr. Allen, do you create in your dreams and wake up and write uh, or record it? Uh, Yes, and I think everyone does. I don't know whether everyone writes it down or records it, but I think we all do create in our dreams. As a matter of fact, a dream itself is an astonishingly creative act. And that is true whether it somehow has coherence and quote, sense and quote to it, or is just phantasmagoric and impossible. I mean, with people flying and elephants painted purple and stuff, regardless of whether it's fantasy or or closer to reality, it's uh, certainly an act of creativity. Uh, Dreams might be likened to film scenes or, or complete films in some rare instances. And what you are dreaming, I mean the fact that you are dreaming, I should say, means that you are not only the writer, the author, the creator of the story of the dream, you are also the director, you're also the film editor, you're also providing the musical score in some instances. You have personally decided what the wallpaper is, you've decided what the woman near the window is wearing. There is no detail of that dream that does not come from you. I think this is somehow connected with the ancient, uh, primitive, uh, mistaken belief, which we see a, uh, a relic of in modern language, the word uh, being inspiration. It means to inspire, obviously, to breathe into, and uh, the, the word is still used, where does that artist get his inspiration? Where does that composer, that painter, that poet get his inspiration? Uh, it's a dumb word. Uh, except that it no longer means what it once did. The the belief I think originally came from either a sort of envy of creative people or a perception that the individual is somehow to be sharply distinguished from his or her gift. Uh, People knew a great sculptor, they knew a great poet, a great composer, a great uh, draftsman or architect or whatever he was, and in many cases they were perfectly well aware that as an individual he was a jerk. I mean that, quite literally, it's not a silly thing to say. Uh, If you saw Amadeus, you already will be aware that one of the points of that was that Mozart personally was a big jerk. But wow, what a genius, what a gift for composing music. Uh, And that was part of the even dramatic energy of the story. Here was this much better human being who said to God, why him? He's a schmuck. I'm a lovely person and I don't have one tenth of his talent. That was the whole point of the story. So I think this in turn relates back to to the point of inspiration. People knew, as I say, poets, or novelists, or whatever they were, statesmen, and they knew that as human beings they left a great deal to be desired, so they wouldn't give them credit for their incredible poetry. They wouldn't give them total credit. They would say the muses, or some helpful spirit, a guardian angel, who knows what, breathed into this dumb person who happens to be my cousin, these admittedly brilliant ideas that he then made a good living by presenting to the world. So I guess we've answered that. Oh, and then to refer to the matter about waking up and writing. Yes, uh, since probably 97% of you in the room are creative to one degree or another, well, there's a sense in which everybody is, but I mean, you, you are professionally creative or plan to be or will soon be. And uh, therefore, you must not have to be told at this point that you must record, you must trap your ideas, and a perfectly useful time to do that is when you're just falling asleep or when you're uh, waking up, even if you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or get a drink of cold water or whatever, you, you, I'm sure, already have noted that you get some interesting ideas. Sometimes they are simply the solutions to problems with which you've been wrestling, or they're a great idea for a poem or a short story or a cartoon or whatever it might be. This is a commonplace, uh, uh, we've had our attention drawn to this, pardon me, by dozens and well, probably hundreds over the years, over the, uh, the planet, of creative people. Bertrand Russell once observed that when he was wrestling with a particularly knotty problem of either a mathematical or philosophical nature, he would do his homework, as we all should, and then he would just forget about the matter and have a good night's sleep. And in most instances, he simply awakened in the morning with the solution. He didn't, at that point, have to do any additional reasoning. He just said, ah, that's it, and he wrote it down. There was one of the great uh, discoveries of chemistry, the benzene ring or whatever, uh, where the gentleman just uh, dreamed the solution. And on on my own far more modest level, I uh, frequently dream jokes. Uh, Some of the best melodies I've ever written uh, were dreamed, which means that I can't take any credit for them. I don't know who can, but I certainly can. (laughs) Uh, we are neither to be blamed nor, nor credited for whatever we dream in a certain sense. Uh, in fact, the, the song that Mr. Conrad was kind enough to mention, one of the songs, this could be the start of something big, occurred to me in a dream. The, uh, the main melodic statement and the first seven or eight lines of the lyric, and after that point it was just a matter of development. A friend of mine, a, a comedy writer, and used to be uh, uh, one of my writers years ago, a gentleman named Leonard Stern, once told me a story, a true story, It would not be funny as a joke, but as truth, it's funny. Since he's a creative person by trade, his wife decided that the time should come where he shouldn't have to depend on what thoughts occurred to him at his typewriter at his desk, but that he should be prepared to grab them when they came in and popped up. So she got him an expensive uh, leather uh, notebook and a gold pen, and she placed it next to his bed, and he appreciated her thoughtfulness very much. And for the first several nights, uh, nothing occurred to him and every morning he'd look at this blank paper and think well pretty soon i'll think of something and, you know, so f- about a week later he suddenly in the middle of the night got what he thought was yeah there it is a brilliant idea so he half asleep he leaned over and wrote something down and went back to sleep happily relaxed uh the next day it was late in the afternoon before he remembered this and he thought oh god i gotta run down the hall and find out what that was and what he had written at about four in the morning on his notepad was the words write it down True story. So even good ideas all, not always pan out. This is just signed Chuck and Irene of Santa Barbara. I'm glad they're back together again. They are. Do you and Jane have any pets? Uh, yes we do, Irene. Uh, we have a lovely German Shepherd. Not a dog. A big tall German kid from Stuttgart, actually. <laughs> Stands out in the backyard with a crook and a stab. Uh, Marilyn Bates of Fullerton. Uh, if you want to whistle or anything, feel free. Thank you. Oh, uh, well, she writes a rather long message about meeting of mine. Yes, we got three or four uh, letters and comment, I mean, uh, questions and comments about meeting of minds, which um, Mr. Conrad mentioned, For those of you quickly who don't know what we're talking about, it was just one more television talk show. It was on the PBS network for four years, but it had the unique distinction that all of the guests were important figures from history. It was not a comedy series, although I do mostly that sort of thing. It was uh, straightforward conversations based on a good deal of research, of course, and uh, it, it featured the ideas of such as Plato. Aristotle, Socrates, Darwin, Galileo, that gives you the idea of the show. I was entertaining not long ago in Dallas at a dinner setting, and we were then taking, smaller audience were taking questions directly from the floor. And one man stood up and he said, If you by any chance ever get back into production of that series, might I recommend a uh, panel to you? I said, Please. He said, I think it would be very instructive in these difficult days to convene a panel of American presidents somebody from the early part of our nation's history and perhaps one of our modern presidents. I said, who would you like to see specifically? He said, well, uh, George Washington might be at the table next to uh, Richard Nixon. And at first I did what a few of you just did. I laughed, but then I thought, no, I'm wrong. It's a marvelous idea because I could have one of them say his most famous line, I cannot tell a lie, and the other one could say, let me give you a few tips. (laughs) But that could happen. Incidentally, if there are any young people here, or even impressionable old people, George Washington never said, I cannot tell a lie. A dodo named Parson Weems made that up with the best of intentions, but uh, it's not true. Uh, Lon Atkins of Costa Mesa, if Boris Yeltsin fails to break the Russian Republic free of the USSR, should he emigrate to Quebec? I'll handle the jokes, Mr. Atkins. (laughs) (laughs) This is signed with Chuck Champlin's name. I don't know whether Chuck really wrote it. I I had a marvelous time in his uh, class or discussion group today. Uh, What drew you, he says, to write a mystery? Yeah, one of my recent books is a mystery novel, Murder Mystery. Uh, And will there be a sequel to Murder on the Glitter Box? uh... yes chuck in fact the sequel came out this week it's called murder in manhattan and uh, at the same time they put out a paperback issue of murder on the glitter box which as the title suggests is about a murder that takes place on an actual television talk show like the tonight show but not it specifically i guess suddenly falls down dead and uh, what drew me to it was a large advance <laughs> And, uh, frankly, basically the plot supplied by the publisher. They, they wrote me a letter about three years back and said, uh, you created The Tonight Show in the first place, and you write a lot of books, and you've written a lot of fiction, and we think somehow this all adds up to you being a good candidate to write a mystery about a murder on a talk show, so forth and so on. So I did it, and it turned out well. As a matter of fact, Chuck, I, I haven't in a few days seen the copy of uh, the paperback, but I think they have a nice quote from the LA Times and I might be wrong, but I think I'm right. Uh, The the complimentary observation, I think, was from your review of that book, so uh, I thank you for that. And let's see. Uh, Jan Curran of Palm Springs. Did your son, the doctor, ever want to go into showbiz? Uh, I have four grown sons. The oldest is indeed a doctor, uh, Dr. Steve Allen, and he is in show business in a sense, although uh, it it came about quite late in his life. He's in his forties now. He uh, is chiefly a family physician in New York, upstate New York, but he does a lot of lecturing, and as the years pass, he gets more and more laughs in his lectures. In fact, he has uh, spoken or entertained here in this area. He appears at a lot of conventions, <coughs> so if you're fortunate, you'll, you'll get to see him. Uh, Lois Perry of uh, Cincinnati. Very interesting question here. I hope Lois is with us because she says, Mr. Allen, did you lose a tie in the vicinity of the McLean Hilton? I don't know, but I'll read on here. I think I have purchased it, <laughs> unless someone with even less taste than I bid more than $15. <laughs> My question, did you really wear that and do you want it back? Well, I think we can safely say I don't want it back, Miss Perry. The only connection with my experience that I can make to this question, Lois, is that in two instances during the past uh, several months, I have given uh, my least attractive ties to a uh, fundraising uh, charity campaign. And the the question, the request specifically was for your ugliest tie. So apparently I made a good choice. that reminds me i was uh, in cincinnati once a fact of dubious relevance but it just happens that's where i was i was to i don't know do what in some department store maybe sign a book this must have been 15 years ago in the book department and i was taken in under wraps by some limo and policemen and stuff and taken up a p- employee's elevator and then released on the floor and as we were walking across the floor third or fourth floor of this big department store we passed a big rack of ties the 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 table ran from about here to the end of that room they must have had literally eight nine thousand ties on it and every one was hideous and uh, that seemed like an important moment to me i thought somewhere there are men who for a living designed these ties and others cut them and stitched them and sewed them and others bragged about them in ads and they were horrible looking what that says about modern culture, I don't know, but you're, you're all writers, you do something with that. <laughs> Gloria Bor, uh, whoops, Borshek, I guess it is, of Reading, California, Borshek, says, Are you going, <laughs> are you going to write a book on the life of Pia Zadora? <laughs> Apparently the uh, folks here, Gloria, did not see the recent uh, telecast of a special program called Night of a Hundred Stars. Uh, Jane and Audrey uh, Meadows were on it uh, together, they're sisters obviously, and uh, I was working in Los Angeles at the time so I couldn't be in New York and on the show, but they recalled the time, uh, the night of the first night of 100 stars about six or seven years ago. Uh, Miss Zadora, who is a singer, for those of you who don't pay attention to such things, uh, was brand new in the business and she had taken a few raps from critics, I don't think at that point I'd ever heard her perform, so there was nothing personal in what I said. I I had planned to say some things and eventually did say them, but at this point, the the ad lib popped out of my mind. There were many more than 100 stars in that room. There were, on this backstage, there were about 200 and in the audience a good many more. And there's a cliché in show business, which need not in fact be limited to the entertainment industry, and it starts out with the phrase, boy if a bomb fell on this room tonight you know if it were all generals, you could say you could wipe out the pentagon or whatever the finish would be and uh, generally as I say it's used in the theatrical context meaning if the nine hundred and fourteen great stars tonight for the academy awards if a bomb ever fell on this room so I said you know if a bomb fell on this room tonight it would certainly be great news for Pia Zadora <laughs> and uh, I did better jokes a few minutes later, but for some reason that one has stuck in the popular consciousness. So Jane and Audrey apologized to Mrs. Adora on my behalf rather. As an example of a better joke that night, (laughs) uh, you have to put up with my mind wandering, but don't worry, it's too weak to get very far. Uh, I had not long theretofore had a book on China published, and this was at the time when Mao Tung's widow, Chongqing, uh, or Ching Chang, I forget. <laughs> Depends on which way she's facing. Anyway, uh, she was, she and her group called the Gang of Four, which always sounded to me like a rock group. Zhang Qing and the Gang of Four, here they are. Uh, anyway, they were literally running this great empire. They were running the Chinese empire before the you know country got organized and threw them out. I think she was in the saddle for, I don't know, almost a year running things and having people killed and all that stuff. So I had, as I say, come back from China not long before that. And uh, somehow I contrived to bring up the subject matter about China. I think there had been something in the news the night before about China. So I said, just think of what that means. Now, for those of you who might know a little about China or might not, uh, Mao's widow was a young actress in in Chinese B-movies when he first met her. I think she was his fourth wife. And uh, as we say in the jazz world, he had eyes for her, so he sent for her and they got married. And uh, she was just a young, ambitious actress when they met, but she read a lot of books and got ambitious later herself about politics. And um, because she was his widow, she automatically had great, I mean his wife and then his widow, she had great power. So I said, just think what this means that somebody who had only distinguished themselves in B movies could be running one of the world's great countries. And the hip people laughed at that point. And then for the remaining part of the audience, I said, thank God nothing like that could ever happen here. <laughs> so uh, anyway, what that has to do with the price of eggs, I don't know. Charles Cleek, C-L-E-E-K of Santa Barbara. By the way, is it hot in here? Yes. Well, let's get out of here. Can they open the... Uh, throw another log on the air conditioner or do something <laughs> may i remove my jacket thank you <laughs> uh i'll just hang it right here <laughs> no that's that, that's the right part you look like sir walter raleigh down there uh anyway what does charles cleek have to say for himself dear steve a few years <laughs> a few years back you wrote four thousand songs in two weeks <laughs> no I wrote two songs in 4,000 weeks That's <laughs> in the window of Music City on a bet uh, I know to what Mr. Cleek refers but it has been considerably distorted in the transmission uh, during that week I wrote 350 songs which is not exactly chop liver either but uh, I have written 4,000 songs more or less in my life uh, those of you who are in journalism or, or will soon be might be interested in this report because it it is not unusual, I don't mean the specifics of it, but uh, the distortion of uh, historical or personal reality actually gets into history books. Um, I began to notice in 1951, when I first got into TV on a regular national basis, that among all the usually lavishly complimentary stories written about me, I. I think in all the 40 years or more, I've only encountered about three that had no errors. Sometimes the more they loved me, the more mistakes there were in the story. And that would in itself not be a fact of much significance were I the only public figure to be so carelessly described. Obviously I'm not. So I refer to that, come to think of it, in a book that is for sale out in the lobby called uh, "Dump," which I'll probably refer to again in a minute. Uh, and one of the the full title of it is "Dumped in 81 Ways to Make Americans Smarter," and one of those 81 ways has to do with not believing everything you read. Uh, from time to time, if, if the mistake is wonderfully complimentary, I just tend to overlook it. But uh, if it uh, is uh, such as not to reflect credit upon me, I naturally have to ask that the record be uh, corrected. The other day, a young lady was writing what was quite an amusing story and probably largely accurate about the special demands made by public figures. Uh, Miss Rivers must have uh, Chanel perfume in her bathroom or whatever. Uh, Miss Zadora must, uh, what <coughs> whatever she has to do. And it, it's reasonable, uh, in fact, I, the folks here got a note from my secretary saying something about Mr. Allen does prefer to have cold orange juice in his dressing room or his hotel room, and they kindly accommodated me in that regard. So. Uh, In this case, uh, it reported correctly that I do often request cold orange juice, and if they can spare the time and the money, a little bit of fruits, you know, bananas or apples or whatever. And it said, and also Mr. Allen insists, absolutely insists, that a supply of cold martinis be served on a silver tray. I don't even drink. And if I did, I wouldn't, uh, you know, bring it up in a memo. So uh, anyway, this, this kind of thing, as I say, is quite common. So even if you, uh, as I say, are a journalist, and you hear this from somebody's former chauffeur, or butler, or uh, agent, or what have you, it's perfectly reasonable to make a note out of it, uh, make a note of it, but check it out, otherwise you'll make a lot of mistakes. By the way, uh, Barnaby, I'm at your service. I, I will talk as long as I'm supposed to, but I, I don't wish to talk any longer than that. Uh, <laughs> Fran Lawrence deals with the same subject matter about all the songs. Jackie Dewey of Imperial Beach, says, forgive me if too personal. <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh, isn't this sweet? She says, I am worried about your asthma. Uh, well, uh, knock it off, Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> Are you still bothered by it? No, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I got
0: some orange juice to keep you
1: going. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Mr. Conrad has reported that he is uh, off on a search for orange juice A successful search, apparently. Ah, how nice. (laughs) Would you applaud, please, if you suspect there could be a little vodka or gin in there?
0: These are navels, is that all right?
1: Yes, very good, thank you. Yeah, I love fruit juice of any kind. Uh there are again, probably some of you did applaud. Some of you think I'll bet there is a little vodka or gin in there. (laughs) And I guess the reason for your uh, skepticism on that point, when I tell you there is not, has to do with the sad fact that there is a correlation between uh, doing comedy and drinking. I personally think the funniest man of the century was W.C. Fields, and he would be very old now, but he would be no older than in the range of Milton Berle and uh, George Burns and Bob Hope, all of whom are 146 or something like that. But they're still funny, they're still in the business, they're still working constantly, and he would be too had he not in fact drunk himself to death, very young. uh, Then there's uh, Foster Brooks, who does a whole marvelous act on that theme, although Foster, oddly enough, does not drink and is making fun of drunks of whom he personally disapproves. But the name that most readily comes to mind in this context, I guess, is that of Dean Martin, because for over 40 years all of us in the business have done endless jokes about Dean's drinking, to the point where many people believe that uh, Dean Martin is an alcoholic, and as a personal friend, I can assure you he is not. Dean takes a drink, as most American gentlemen do, but he is, I repeat, uh, not an alcoholic. He is a junkie. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, whenever the asthma, as we say in the commercials, flares up. Uh, <laughs> I I, uh, use a drug called uh, Theodore. I use another drug for my memory, but that's another (laughs) man. Dale Griffiths hyphen Stamos. Obviously a mixed marriage. A man and a woman, I suppose. She says, you're obviously a renaissance man. Uh, How obvious that is, I don't know, Dale, but thank you. I see myself actually more as a man of the dark ages. I'm presently waking, working my way through the Reformation and if I'm fortunate I might eventually get to the Renaissance, but I'll keep you advised. Uh, did you have people trying to pigeonhole you along the way? In all seriousness, Dale, yes, and, and I understand it. I never objected to that. Uh, for those of you who just got into the country, I do about nine things for a living. How well is a separate question, but the world is kind to me and lets me do all that. But uh, teachers generally, in fact parents, or just human beings, don't understand that. They think that if you're doing a dozen things at school, you are, quote, spreading yourself too thin, and quote, or quote, becoming a jack of all trades, master of none, and so forth. But uh, while it's understandable that they would uh, think in those ways, they are, in fact, uh, wrong. Noel Coward did about 16 things, all brilliantly. And he would have been very poorly advised to listen to the people who almost certainly did tell him to concentrate on the great songs he could write or the wonderful plays or the acting or whatever he could do. So uh, in my high school days, the English teacher would say, now you're obviously either going to be a journalist or a poet or something of that sort because your stuff is okay, but it's a very demanding profession and you must stop all this nonsense with the school plays and putting on the comedy shows for the assemblies. and uh, you know, playing the piano and dance bands at night. You've got to give all that up and concentrate on your writing. And then the music teacher would take me aside and say, it's clear that you're going to be a musician, but it's not the easiest field in the world. There's a lot of suffering and hard work, so you must stop all this nonsense of writing poems. What money will you make from writing poems? So you can see the drama coach would say the same thing, and uh, I guess I never listened to any of them. Uh, I think we've covered most of the... Uh, questions Yeah, I'm sorry they all some of them fell down here's one more Tom McNamara I guess what drove you mr. Allen to jump into that vat of jello (laughs) Uh, yeah I used to do a show in the early 60s uh, a comedy talk show in which I did a lot of crazy stunts like that and one night in a three-piece suit I did indeed jump into an enormous vat of jello as to what drove me um, I don't know. I'd never thought of that before. I guess I was prescient and thought that if I did a lot of things like that, that maybe 30 years down the line, it would leave some ideas for David Letterman to emulate. That was probably <laughs> what I had in mind. In, in David's defense, he has, in dozens of instances, been kind enough, when interviewed at length to, to bring that up. He used to watch that show every night when he was going to college in Indiana, and uh, he wanted to do a show like that. Now, it's been suggested that I say a few words about this. Uh, It's a serious subject matter, but then comedy is a serious subject matter. The uh, nature, the raw material, I should say, of comedy is tragedy, as most creative people, such as yourselves, uh, are already aware. I literally, although I've written thousands of jokes, I think I would be stuck if somebody said, do you want to write a joke? I'd say, yeah. They'd say, okay, it starts like this. That girl was so beautiful that... I, I don't know how I would finish that. But if the joke starts, that girl was so ugly, then you could write a million jokes. And comedy is almost universally about bad news. It's about financial embarrassment, sexual frustration, getting caught in embarrassment. Uh, it's not altogether unfitting, which is more than I can say for that jacket I was wearing, <laughs> that uh, I would bring up this uh, serious book. Oddly enough, despite the serious of the problem, and the problem is that the American people have gotten so dumb it's internationally embarrassing, This is not just a hunch of mine. If it were, why would they publish a book based on an entertainer's hunch? No, it's all documented. There is no one who any longer denies it. There are now a million U.S. teenagers a year who leave school unable to read. A million a year. One in five Americans, adults, cannot read as well as a fourth grader. Uh, a typical Japanese student spends two hundred and forty days a year in the classroom in our country it 's uh, one hundred eighty, uh, and at least half of u s seniors cannot use a bus schedule, calculate a restaurant tip, even though you tell them try ten percent it 's an easy number, or locate washington d c on the map as a matter of fact on the, to refer to the book directly on page one, uh, I mention uh, uh, Startling discovery that I made one evening while watching a newscast on NBC just a few years ago. It refers to the results of a test given to a geography class at the world-famed University of Miami. Granted, they're famed for their football teams, but they are nevertheless a university in a major city. And a survey of more than 100 of them showed that 42% had no idea where London is. Several thought Quebec was in Alaska, which it soon may be, come to thinking. Uh, More than half could not find Chicago on a map. Uh, Many were not too sure what part of Europe France was in, but the final insult, and this is true, not a comedy routine, is that 8% of these students in Miami could not place Miami on a map. They knew that they were in it, but they had no sense of where they were on the planet and uh, the book is full of uh, depressing or funny examples of the sort of ignorance the word dump doesn't is is not simply uh, a substitute or the equivalent of the word ignorant or ignorance i should say since it's a noun but uh, it refers to uh, the general muddle-headedness by coincidence a woman who had just read this book sent me a couple of days ago a fascinating story it sounds like another version of my book written by one of the editors of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Mr. Art Carey by name, and he gives the same kinds of examples that I do, uh, different ones. I'll just share a few with you. In Detroit, a 105-ton segment of the 2.9-mile people mover under construction crashes to the ground on a Sunday morning, shattering into millions of pieces. In Michigan's thumb, the mile and a half long Zilwaukee uh, bridge intended to ease bumper-to-bumper summer traffic on I-75 takes nine years to finish, five years longer than predicted, and at a cost almost twice as high as expected. New York Telephone Company has to test 57,000 people before they can find 2,000 qualified to become operators and repair technicians. Uh, And there are many more examples, they all make the same point, so it's not uh, necessary to quote them all. Uh, We are all born ignorant, uh, obviously. I think it was Will Rogers who said, uh, we are all ignorant, uh, only on different subjects. But we are now, as they say, abusing the privilege. The degree of ignorance and the lack of excuse for it uh, is simply unprecedented. It's not only uh, hideously uh, inconvenient for our major and even minor corporations, most of whom now have to open remedial schools, not to teach people about Polish history, but about uh, where commas go, what a sentence is, how to spell simple two-syllable words that are in common use. Uh, and this is when they're dealing with 20 and 21, 22-year-old people. Uh, but again, there's, there's no contention about this. The only discussion or debate has to do with what we can do in response and uh, the book does uh, present uh, twenty-one, I mean eighty-one rather, uh, suggestions uh, as to what we might do. Just to uh, share a few with you at no cost. Uh, Most of them are quite simple. Nothing is going to make you fall down and say my god what a brilliant idea. You you probably thought of all these yourself or you would have if you had time. Rule number two, do some casual studying about the brain. The mind, memory, and the whole field of psychology. Number seven, examine your superstitions. Almost everyone is superstitious. They think other people are superstitious. Uh, recognize, uh, rule number eight, recognize that you have personal prejudices. Uh, number 11, be aware that your opinions, assumptions, and beliefs are often affected by peer group pressure. Uh, this has been uh, documented in laboratories in such a way that uh, there is no uh, criticizing the results of the experiments. They take people of superior intelligence who are already, to a degree, authorities on a given subject, let's say mathematics. They get a group of mathematicians together, not just average folks, we all might goof on an arithmetic test. They get people who do that for a living, let's say. They put them in a series of booths and what the people don't know, what one of them doesn't know is that he's the patsy, the other four are in on this sort of Alan Funt type stunt. And they ask a quite simple question and he is told that he is number five and that uh, at a certain time when his turn comes he can hit whatever buttons will give his answer now he knows they deliberately pose a question to which he will certainly know the answer that that's part of the test and then they have the first four people a b c and d give a different answer two or three of which happen to agree in almost every case number five changes his mind something he's known for twenty years and goes along with the majority thing yes And these are, again, our people very familiar, you know, high school math teachers, that sort of thing. So, and don't groan at how stupid they are. We're talking about the human race, not just mathematics, people. Uh, Let's see. Well, anyway, I I don't want to just read the book to you. But uh, we, we have to do something about this. And when I say we, I mean, again, all of us, even if you're just working with your nephew. Don't just say, yes, good for you, Steve, keep writing those books. Um, I don't make my living from my books. I make my living as an entertainer. You know, if it ever happens, I make a lot of money from a book. I'll tell you about it. I don't write them to make money. I write them because I care about issues. And this is uh, internationally embarrassing. Americans have a very sensitive, ego-plugged feeling about coming in second or third in athletic competition. Even though they personally are not involved. They're just sitting home in their cans watching television. They get very rude and disrespectful of our poor athletes. Now, this probably is the guy that's the fastest runner in the United States, but he goes to some foreign country and he comes in second. You wouldn't believe the groans, the insults, the hate mail the poor kid gets. I'm talking reality. He let us down. Wouldn't you love to be the second in the world in anything? If I were the second best pianist in the world, I'd be thrilled. I wouldn't get depressed because somebody was better than I was. So uh, anyway, we have this sensitivity about athletics, but we're coming in 17th and 38th and 29th in history, in arithmetic, in mathematics. And nobody seems I shouldn't say nobody, not many people seem to care about that when it's obviously a hell of a lot more important than mathematics. So uh, anyway, there's there's some heat in this book and I I hope it makes sense to you. is there anything you want me to talk about? Uh, anything about my writing? or? I think second best pianist. <laughs> All right, I, I'll be happy to play. Yes, ma'am. Are you going to play the piano? Am I going to play the piano? <laughs> <laughs> A pattern seems to be developing here. Uh, yes, I'll be happy to. Incidentally, uh, I forgot to see what time. Oh, I guess it's almost over. So I'd better start playing pretty quickly. All right, I'll do that. and uh, there is not the grace, with rare exceptions. That was once characteristic of the work of Johnny Mercer, Ira Gershwin, or some of the other two masters of that particular art form. Uh, If I may, I'll play something by Jerome Kern now. In his day, when he wrote musicals, it was expected, and he delivered the goods, that there would be oh, five, or six, or seven great melodies, memorable melodies, in each show. Today, even in good musicals, if you get eight bars, <laughs> this is a fact, not an observation. If you get eight bars of memorable music, where people fall all to pieces. In gratitude. That's wrong. You should ask for their money back. But uh, it was once typical, as I say, of the writing of Jerome Kern and Paul Porter and the other giants that they would give you several new hit standards every time the show opened on Broadway. Here's something from uh, one of the Jerome Kern musicals it's gotta be over 60 years old and they have not improved upon it in form since. I'm gonna play it fairly simply so you can consequently not on it. Don't care, but on what Mr. Kearney did. <laughs> the black people that have coming on. Anyway, uh, the young people today have very little understanding, if any, as to when rock started. You can even introduce the subject they name some to totally irrelevant names, such as Elvis Presley, uh, Buddy Holly, Eleanor Roosevelt, two more, two more, <laughs> and all <laughs> They have no idea <laughs> who started rock. It started not in the 50s, it started in the late 1920s. Uh, when a number of creative young black jazz pianists introduced a then-new style called boogie woogie, and it's still one of the good elements of the better rock songs to, to speak about the rhythm of. It will never sound old-fashioned. It sounds like this.